Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Hi, everyone. This is Kimberly. And this is Katie. And you're listening to A Date with Dateline. This is a very sleuthful episode in which... That's the word. You're just making up adjectives. I like it. Where we interview Linda Sawyer, the host of a wonderful, amazing, fascinating podcast that Katie fell in love with and then got me really into called Sleuth. And it is about the Daniel Wozniak murder case... Uh, the girlfriend, Rachel Buffett, Sam Hare, and Julie Kibuishi. Kibuishi. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Orange County, the theater, the Phantom of the Opera, the mm-hmm. Balls Up Inside of Me, Final Curtain, Dateline. So we were contacted by a wonderful listener named Ashley Bridges on Facebook, and she is the one who hooked us up with Linda Sawyer. So we're really appreciative. Uh, We hope you guys enjoy this. You really have to listen to our final curtain recap. We did a two-parter. Yeah. Or at least just watch the Dateline. You should watch the Dateline anyways because it's a great episode with Mankey. But you won't understand anything that we're talking about if you don't do one of those two things. Thank you so much, Linda, for meeting with us. We had such a good time. Enjoy this episode. And I'm sure after this, you're all going to want to go and download Sleuth. You should subscribe, leave her some nice comments. It's a great podcast. And she has worked like for three years researching. She knows every single thing about this case. So it's super impressive. So thank you, Linda. And Enjoy. enjoy. We have a very special guest with us today. We have the host and creator of Sleuth, the podcast. Welcome, Linda, to A Date with Dateline. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. It's so exciting to have you. Okay, so we have so many questions about specifics about this particular case. This is the case of Daniel Wozniak, who is the phantom of the opera murderer, as you call him. This is from the Dateline episode, Final Curtain, everybody. So... We did a two-part episode on the Dateline episode, and Sleuth covers this case in so much more detail, and Linda's got all the goods. But we want to find out what interested you in this case and how you got started. Well, I'm a single mom. I have twin daughters, and they grew up in musical theater. They went to college for musical theater. I always thought it was a safe haven for my daughters. When you're a single mom, you're obviously working to pay the bills and mm-hmm. put food on the table. And, and so when you see your kids passionate about something, you want to support it. And for me, the idea that they were in this environment of kids that didn't want to go to the malls and do drugs and piercings and all that yeah, nonsense. Yeah. So it was just not only a safe place, I thought, but, you know, a, a positive place. They, they were learning so much about themselves. And, yeah. and I just felt comfortable. Until I heard this story. Fast forward, you know, 20 some odd years later, when I'm still, in fact, an investigative reporter, and I had been 
profiling a, I was actually covering a woman who had been a shrink for all of these serial killers back in the 80s. Her office was actually a cell in the men's county jail. So she had like the Hillside Strangler and Manson and uh, the Freeway Killers and all, I mean, Ramirez, the Night Stalker. These were her patients. So I was doing a profile piece for uh, Crime Watch Daily at the time. And afterwards, she asked me to stay for a little Christmas eggnog, and she was having carolers and, and a little little party. I said, don't fight the 405 now. It's crazy. So I said, sounds good. Okay. And uh, that's what I did. And then at the party, I don't know, whenever I go to these events, it always happens. People are like, oh, you're a, you're a crime reporter? Well, we've got a story that a cold case, blah, blah. So I, I like that people come to me and tell me that, but it doesn't always stick, right? It's not always like the one. But I met these theater owners, Jeff and Nancy Hathcock, at this party, and they proceeded to tell me, we have a story for you. Our lead in our musicals, all our musicals, was a guy by the name of Daniel Wozniak, and he decided to murder his friends and chop them up in the attic of our theater. And I'm wow. like, huh? What? Yeah? Really? No. No, no. Couldn't be. You must. Something's wrong here. <laughs> And they proceeded to tell me more details. Uh, honestly, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And then I said to them, well, when did this happen? And they said 2010, May of 2010. Mm-hmm. And this was December of 2015 when I met them at Christmas time. I said, oh, the case is probably done. He's probably in St. Quentin. And they said, no, actually, the trial starts Monday. Wow. So I picked up my cell phone and I called my one twin daughter in New York. I said, I'm not coming home. And I haven't been home since. No. Wow. That's oh, crazy. Wow. I kid you not. That's oh, crazy. Goodness. But so you are the ultimate. Do you feel like you know everything about this case at this point? I've had the police tell me that. I've had the victims' families tell me that. You know, you know this. I've had the attorneys, uh, in particular Scott Sanders, the defense counsel. You know, whenever I meet with him, he goes, well, you just know this better than I do. And I'm just yeah. like, wow. wow. It's, uh, I take it as a badge of honor. I mean, when we've done some of these shows, the uh, uh, cable shows that have covered this case, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll pull me in for an interview and then they'll ask me to stay for the other interviews. As an expert. Right. Because I told them, they said, what's the thing that's going to make sure that the victim's families are okay with our version of mm-hmm. events? I said, to get it right. right. You have to get it right. And so they said, okay, we'd like you to stay on. And so I'll have like the police turn to me and say, Linda, what was the date on that? You know, whatever. <laughs> no kidding. And, and the producers are just like agog. But I'm glad to be able to be there so that for the sake of the victims' families, they do get it right. Absolutely. You got so much. It's not even juicy detail. It's painting a picture of Rachel and of Daniel. And with his brother, they had this strange family dynamic. Rachel's family. Oh my goodness. This family dynamic is unlike anything I've heard. I was listening to it last night. I episode seven, are you referring to I'm episode talking seven? about episode seven? I literally stopped in my tracks while I was walking and I stopped and my mouth was on the floor and I had to go back. I mean And pick up your mouth. Exactly. <laughs> pick up my mouth, sweep it up, and then go back and re-listen again. I mean, it's unbelievable. We were fascinated by the brothers, by Tim. And by Noah. The two brothers. And if I tell you of all the episodes, that one, I was excoriated on social media Why for that is that? Episode. This is, we're talking about, okay, so this is episode seven with the man who Rachel dated after the murders. I'm for sorry, almost his, two years. His name is? Scott Errett. Scott Yes. Errett. Okay. And he, they dated for how long? Almost two years. Almost two years. Wow. But it was an open kind of re- 
was it an open? He talks about her going to Vegas with this guy and then. Right. But that happened right in the beginning. They weren't really okay, dating yet. yet. Okay. They they just sort of met each other and no, nothing really developed yet. Right. Okay. That Vegas trip with uh, James Mulligan mm-hmm. happened in the fall of 2010. Dan was arrested and incarcerated in May of 2010. So that Vegas trip was a few months after he was incarcerated. Wow. No, she's a busy girl. Yeah. But she was a busy girl when she was with Dan, too, correct? Well, I don't know if there was any affairs going on, but there was a lot of flirting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of control issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, she flirted in front of him. Mm -hmm. She would uh, demean him and and take away his manhood Mm -hmm. when... She would make him do certain things at parties, like, go kiss that guy or I'm not going to go home with you tonight, you know, and, and he would do it. It's insane, the power dynamic. And he that- never thought he deserved her. Right. So he'd do anything to keep her. Oh. And she knew it. And those are the kinds of guys that she usually is attracted to, mm-hmm. that she has some power over them. So do you think that that was sort of part of her relationship with Scott because he was much older? Well, he was much older. She, right. And he She's was... this young, hot thing. And, and he, and he was, uh, I think, enamored and, sure. and was uh, having like a trophy wife on your arm, right? Oh he brought up some things about her personality of wanting all men to want her, even if she didn't want them. Mm-hmm. And That's so the there was another guy who had slept with Julie, right? Dave Barnhart. And he liked Rachel, Very but much. she didn't like him until she found out that he had slept with Julie. Is that kind of? I think that Rachel only likes Rachel. Yeah. I mean, Rachel's all about Rachel, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So everybody else is just pieces in a chess game. Wow. And Dave Barnhart was one of them. And she, and she loved that he just wanted her so badly that her control over him was not reciprocating. Only to a certain extent. Only maybe sort of flirting mm-hmm. and touching, but no, all the way in, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be your girlfriend kind of thing. And so he kept thinking that maybe there was hope or a chance, but he developed a friendship with Julie. And he, and he said to me, Julie was not only beautiful on the outside, but beautiful on the inside mm-hmm. as well. And I just think that she became the, the perfect prop, if you will. As mm-hmm. her mom said. Because... Rachel is the jealous type. She do- she wants all the attention for herself. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want anybody else taking her limelight away. And so the combination of Dan talking to Julie as Sam and then her seeing those texts when he came back to give Chris Williams the first $400, I think that combination, because the luring didn't happen. It didn't happen till after Dan came right. back with Rachel. right. And then the luring started. Uh, she did get a, a message from Julie earlier that day, a Facebook message right. saying, you know, I heard you're getting married. Right, Congratulations. Right. And Rachel waited till 1110 that night to, to respond to her, which was what many think of. Alibi. A, a, absolutely. An alibi, a digital alibi. She actually then responds to her 40 minutes before she's murdered, saying, I can't wait to spend the time with you at the pool and the sunshine. And she confessed to Daniel Halkyard, this pastor friend of Daniel Wozniak, that even though she told police that she was in bed on her computer when she was responding, she was actually at the desk, at the the desktop computer, and Dan was standing right behind her when she sent that. I mean, they were clearly... Yeah. No, clearly together doing planning all this out you know so we have part of the murder with sam 
might not have happened at that time or at all without Chris's part of the story. And then this other person talking about his relationship with Julie kind of threw Julie into the mix and made her a victim. It really is what her boyfriend said, a perfect storm in that apartment building was the dynamics between all of these people together and the lies. And they all seem to enjoy some sort of drama. They plan it. You know, I mean, Noah Buffett, uh, Rachel's brother, told the Spaths, John and Kristen Spath, who were the parents of Brittany Boudreaux, mm -hmm. who was Daniel's girlfriend before Rachel, mm -hmm. and the girl on the sex tape. Yes. They were very close with Dan, and they had dated for a couple of years, and they, they still were friendly with him and still considered him family even after their daughter and Daniel broke up. And Noah and Rachel came to the Spaths' home that Saturday morning after Dan was... Dan confessed to the murders on Thursday afternoon, and that was May 27th of, of 2010. And then two days later, Rachel and Noah show up at the Spath's house. She has a big two-liter thing of vodka that she's literally chugging from the, from the throat. And they separate the two of them. Noah sits in the kitchen area with John Spath, and Rachel goes out on the deck with Brittany and her mom, Kristen. But what Noah says to... John, that's very disturbing because John says, we've known him forever. We never saw any violence. We never saw any propensity for violence. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did lie. He did a lot of white lies. We knew that. But they were sort of these innocuous lies. They didn't really come to mean anything. And so Noah said, oh, no, oh, no, I could see it. We used to sit around and plan together the perfect murder wow. and how we would get away with it. He said, and I know he did it because he told me I was a co-signer on that lease. This is Noah speaking to John. I was a co-signer on that lease. And I said to Daniel Wozniak, what's going to happen here? You guys are about to get thrown out. You know, the, the sheriff's notice is on the door. Right. My credit's going to be destroyed. And Daniel told me as long as he could get $400 a day out, he was going to be okay. Well, $400 a day is exactly, at the time, how much the ATM would allow you right. to take out on a daily basis. And that's exactly what Wesley was trying to do. I don't understand the end game of that because ATMs have cameras on them. And if he set it up so that it looked like Sam had run off, it would be very easy to track where he was taking money out. So how long did he think he was going to be able to do this? I mean, the whole the whole plan was idiotic. Was so stupid. Well, this is why I sort of, I wasn't surprised when you do have some friends on of both Dan and Rachel that talk about their drug use. And that yeah. started to make a little more sense to me when mm -hmm. we got into that world because the plan is so bad. These people both don't seem stupid, but this is a stupid plan. And honestly, I think there could have been more of a push to proceed and look into charges for other people. I mean, for instance, Noah. Oh, I asked the police, why didn't you charge Noah? I mean, what the Spath told you was clearly evidence that supported his knowledge of the murders before they took place. Yet mm -hmm. he didn't come forward and do anything about it. And they said, well, we did originally charged him with accessory after the fact, but we dropped the charges because he was so helpful. Mm -hmm. With Rachel doing our voice stress test, he supported us and convinced her to do it. I said, what did you think he was going to do? Of course he's going to say, yes, Rachel, you have to submit to this test. If he didn't, he would have looked even more guilty. 
so it's just I think what happened was once Daniel confessed, mm-hmm. everybody was high fiving in the police mm-hmm. department, and they were all excited. They had their man, mm-hmm. they had their man, and that was it. Like mm-hmm. I'm not saying they didn't work hard to build evidence against Rachel. I think they did. In this case, I think it was the DA saying no, no, no. I mean, it was always this is circumstantial. This is circumstantial. But Matt Murphy said to the jurors in Rachel's accessory after the fact trial, you rarely get direct evidence in a murder case. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. direct evidence is a videotape right. of the there killer, yeah. you know, yeah. stabbing his victim to death mm-hmm. or Goodness. shooting him. Or, mm-hmm. You don't have that almost ever. Mm-hmm. So most of these cases are built on circumstantial. And and between myself and, and Steve Hare, I mean, we came up with 10 pages of guilt-ridden evidence circumstantial yes but evidence Mm -hmm. you know it's like if it walks like a duck and quacks Mm -hmm. like a duck it's a duck and even the jury forewoman on that trial came over to me after the sentencing and said I've been listening to the podcast and and sitting in the courtroom I kept wondering why wasn't he charging her with murder right and I'm like you and me both and in fact if anything I think our work on Sleuth has shown that there were other accomplices and that those accomplices need to face justice. Absolutely. And I know that that goes against the narrative of the DA's office, but it is my belief. It is the belief of many. It is actually the belief of the Costa Mesa police. Mm-hmm. But this is where the whole idea of cameras in the courtroom can be a slippery slope. I mean, I am a proponent of that. I believe that transparency is the best way to exact justice, right? But what happens is I feel like the prosecutors and maybe even the defense counsel, not in this case, but it could happen as well, that they start performing in ways for the cameras, you know, and they, I think that the cameras can tend to pervert the course of justice. If in fact, like this case, you have a DA's office that has this win at all cost mentality. Mm-hmm. And there was a death sentence that had to be won. And so therefore, don't point the finger at anybody else because that could be a mitigating factor. And that's the essence of what happened here. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with where Dan Wozniak is. I've said it many times. Mm-hmm. I have a problem with how he got there. I have a problem with the fact that he could have gotten there clean. He could have gotten there with the evidence that they had. They had a confession. They had bloody tools. Uh-huh. They had everything they needed. They cut a deal with the brother who pointed the finger and said, no, he didn't have any mental problems growing up, whatever. That case could have been won, and it could have been won without framing Rachel as a Mother Teresa type, mm-hmm. without yes. cutting a deal with Tim Wozniak. And, 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 you know, just for the record, Matt Murphy says he didn't cut a deal, but I've spoken to Tim many times, and he has unequivocally told me that he knew he was going to do no jail time. Wow. And he's told his friends that, and his friends have told me that. And I don't believe an attorney in this country that would put their client on the stand not knowing what the end result was going to be. I mean, if you're going to testify against your brother, mm-hmm. you know, wink and a nod, you're going to understand and appreciate that your client's not going to get jail time. And that's exactly what happened. He pled guilty to uh, accessory after the fact, a felony count, Mm -hmm. and then did not, in fact, have any jail time for that. But Tim, I think episode 20 is 
yeah. pretty relevant in this point in the conversation because it's so clear he was involved way deeper than that. Oh, and yes. Again, it's turning the other way because of political expediency, because they want that death penalty. And that, to me, is dangerous because then you have people in power that choose and decide who faces the hands of justice and who doesn't, who basically walks away after their involvement in a murder as an accomplice and who doesn't. It's, it's frightening to me. So let's talk about Tim Wozniak since we're on the topic. So I haven't heard episode 20 yet. So for all of our listeners who haven't listened to Sleuth, let's break it down for them. We think Tim, the brother of Dan, was involved before or after the murder. To me, from what I've learned, not only through the interviews I've done, which is over 300 at this point. Wow. I also have access to transcriptions of police Mm -hmm. interrogations, police interviews. One of those interviews was with a gentleman by the name of Chris Williams. Chris Williams is a big player in this. Yes, we remember him. We have strong feelings about Chris Williams. Okay, I'll be very curious what you think about him. (laughs) So he actually said to the police when he received the first installment of money that was due back to him, Chris Williams, just for your listeners, was a friend, a peripheral friend of Dan and Rachel, who he met through Jenny Jones, who was one of the cast members in Nine. And Nine was the musical Dan and Rachel were performing in during these murders. Through Jenny Jones, met Dan and Rachel a few weeks earlier, and they told him what had happened when Dan was arrested for an outstanding DUI warrant, warrant a week before the murders. He almost couldn't perform that Saturday night. Rachel was scrambling to get the bail money to get him out so he could perform in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the show that Saturday night. Not concerned about the wedding as much as the performance <laughs> of nine. Well, because the wedding was... Uh, two weeks away? was two weeks away. Yeah. That, yeah. So Rachel was scrambling to get the bail money. Chris had heard about this because she was able to get the bail money, got him out. They performed that night. And then he had heard that this happened to Daniel. And he said, hey, listen, the next time you're in a jam like that, you know, reach out to me. I'll help if I can. Yeah. And he had just had this charity concert in the beginning of that month in May because he had a lot of health issues. He was very overweight at the time, had a lot of health issues. And he needed some surgeries. So all these artists came together and they raised $10,000 for him. This is covered yes. in Dateline, actually. That, but we that weren't concert. clear if the money part of that money yes, it was. raised. It I was. See. It was. Okay. So he then said to them, and he's also, he's Italian and he's told me that his mother's side of the family is in the mafia in Canada, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> he said that he was watching an episode of Sopranos, the, the episode where he took, takes the head out of the bathtub, right? So he thought, Oh, this is perfect. I'll say, you know, I need the money back by Friday, and I, because I borrowed the money from disreputable people from That's loan where sharks. He got the idea, I right? Can't oh that. my god, I can't yes. believe that. See, in our opinion, well, my opinion, that was it's the stupidest idea in the world. I just feel like if you are loaning someone money and you have to make up a story about leg breakers or mafia or hitmen or something, don't loan those people money. Correct. And I felt like it. And honestly, put a that lot of this into it was the mo- pressure was of the, the time. It was it was the pressure of the time factor. Right. 
that's what anchored the murders on that Friday because Chris said, I need the money back by Friday. He had said he was going to his doctors on Monday for the surgery. He needed to plunk down all this money and he needed it back by Friday. He said to me, one of the reasons why he said that was because that was the last weekend of the shows. What if I never saw him again? Mm -hmm. Uh, So he does to give him his due, does feel very haunted by that he told this story and feels very guilty about it. But I mean, we were debating online. Dan probably would have murdered someone anyways, but that this maybe did put a time clock on it and sped things up a little bit. Certainly. And like you said, if you're loaning people money on a Tuesday... In what world do you think you're going to get it back on Friday? Where are they going to get it? They're That's, just going to borrow. I mean, it was literally four, three days later. That's Tuesday, what I kept to Katie. It, it on every no TV sense. show, if you have a timeline of when you're supposed to get money back, nowhere on the TV show does someone get that money back in three a days later. Safe way where no one gets right, hurt. Right. They are robbing someone. They right. are stealing someone. They're selling drugs. Something that it never works out. It well. was completely unrealistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But getting back to your question about Tim. Yes. So Chris came on Friday, mm-hmm. waited all afternoon. A lot of things transpired between he and Rachel. Not everything that he shared in the courtroom. A lot, a, a lot of other things happened during that day. I assumed so. He was, was very so. hot for Rachel. Let's just uh, yeah. It seems everyone, like everyone was. was. Yeah. She was sort of one of those. She's got that Lady Macbeth thing going. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Dan comes after he kills Sam and leaves him in the attic of the theater. Mm-hmm. He enlists Wesley. Gives them a hat and sunglasses, right. kind of like you guys are now. Uh, <laughs> no. And Wesley. so he uh, he gets Wesley to go to the ATM and get out the first installment of money. He comes back and he plops it down on the table to Chris. Chris takes the money. Then Chris leaves. He feels very uncomfortable. He can see it looks like Dan's about to have a heart attack. He's, so st- mm. he's never seen someone so stressed out in his life that he saw Dan Wozniak. Mm-hmm. He could tell that Rachel was pissed off at him. There was just this awkward ick feeling in the air. So he bailed out of there. When he left the apartment, he walked by a guy smoking a cigarette. He says that to the police in the transcripts. He meets on Monday Daniel Wozniak to get the rest of his money. And who drives him there? But Tim Wozniak. And he goes out to the car and he sees Tim Wozniak. And he said to me, that was the same guy I saw outside the apartment smoking a cigarette. <gasps> Tim it knew was everything. Wow. That's crazy. So there's so much more. There's witnesses that saw Dan drive back with Tim in the car, in Sam's car yes, that I was Saturday. That, the two on their balcony they saw. Right. Mm-hmm. And actually, Dan has admitted that his brother was there for the cleanup, for the positioning of Julie's body and the cleaning of the blood. And, and Tim has confessed to family members, his cousin, Kathleen mm-hmm. Comfort, that He's always haunted in his sleep by the crunching of the bones mm-hmm. and the and the tools weren't good enough what they were using. And I mean, there's two sets of footprints by Sam's body. There's a bloody pair of sneakers that came out of Tim's closet that's never been tested. It's I could just go on and on. The, you guys, I'm this this her podcast is incredible. It's wow. as so every episode is filled with so many details. I mean, we just got the very tip of the iceberg but there's so much more so let's talk really quick your theory that rachel was the mastermind was there a moment that it clicked for you or were there a series of things that just were like no the i've listened to several of the interviews of people who have had their moments yes. like the boyfriend had the moment where this 
it flipped. And then when she was pounding on his chest, I told you to burn the body. Yes, yes, exactly. And then there oh was the friend who went with her, which he did go to the the police. That did, was a thing. And the police that. called Matt Murphy on the phone and said, "We've got her. We've got We've her." Got her. Mm-hmm. He, you know, he came forward, and this is no. He's an ex. He could have an axe to grind. I mean, there are no I'm, perfect I'm witnesses to put on the stand. He was great. He would have but been there was so no convincing. sign of him anywhere. Yeah, that's crazy. Which I've always said, you know, you never get to the truth of a story in a courtroom. You you get maybe 20% of the story in the courtroom. Yeah. You have to go out. It's like on the street, gumshoe. It, mm-hmm. It's like I said, I'm like this relentless Aaron Brockovich. Like yeah. I, I won't yeah. stop until people talk to me and tell me what they know. Yeah. Because they're the ones with the answers, right? Right. I'm just this person, <laughs> you know, trying to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah. Right. right? But... I don't have those pieces unless I talk to these people, right? right? But it paints a picture, all of these stories of this person that is kind of an enigma. And we're trying to understand this woman, Rachel, this girl. She seems more like a girl than a woman, doesn't she? She is a sociopath in the highest order. I mean, there's a soullessness when you don't have a conscience, right? When you, you know right from wrong, but you don't care. So that's why I'm curious if there was a moment for you just circling back. I want to know if there was a shoe dropping or anything that just that girl, there's something wrong here. Did you go in to do the research on the story to uncover more about Rachel or were you just going in to study the story? For me, of everything that I've heard and everything that I've learned over the last three years, I think the singular piece of evidence for me Mm -hmm. that did it was it was actually the interview that Rachel had with the Costa Mesa police Mm -hmm. that twigged for me this girl knew it all and was part of it all she had called Chris Williams on Dan's cell phone after he left the apartment that Friday Mm -hmm. to say to him please come back and he said why why is it about the money and she said no no it's about something very different and you dropped a $20 bill Mm. And he said to himself, I pushed that $20 bill across the table for money, for food. Because I said to them, do you have any food? Mm -hmm. And they said, no. So I wanted them to have something, whatever. So he said, no, I gave you that for food. And she goes, well, you must have dropped another 20. (gasps) And he knew at that point, no, I'm not. He said every bone in his body just was Mm -hmm. wigging out saying something's weird going on and I'm not going back there. So he said, I'll talk to you later tonight when I see you, whatever. But she had said to police that during that $400 transaction, during that moment on Friday, she had told the police Dan gave the money to loan sharks or maybe even possibly Sam outside the apartment. And that's when I knew, oh, my gosh, she was in the apartment when Dan handed Chris the money. She was sitting right there. Mm -hmm, She acknowledges that she was sitting right there because she's calling him to say, oh, you dropped a 20, right? And yet she's trying to tell police at that first interrogation, which was Wednesday morning between like 3 and 6 a.m., she's telling him that Dan gave the money to either the Mm -hmm. loan sharks or Sam. That to me said she knew it all. See that? Yeah, I had the same thought. That was my breaking point, too. I was trying to see if I could justify that that was when she found out about Sam for the first time and then she was in on it from that point on, which would mean in the 20 minute window that Chris left, she heard from Dan that he had just murdered someone. It's brand new information to her. And then she processes that and decides they also need to kill the person who was just there, which she is, I think, could be that 
kind of sociopath where she was like, okay, let's do this. Let's handle it. But so that made me think she definitely knew about Julie and everything after. I just wasn't sure if she knew about the Sam thing before. But I'm pretty much sure now after listening to your show. I think Julie was her idea. Hands yeah, down. yeah, for sure. But I just didn't know if she knew about the Sam plan. Uh, in this finale episode of Sleuth, you'll learn about a deep throat interview <gasps> I had. And she knew everything. <gasps> I'm so excited. I'm so excited. So I was going to ask you what that. you were doing. <laughs> I was going to ask what, what we could expect in the finale. We're so, we can't wait. It, But did you seek out to... May, I think was your goal to make other people accountable or at least bring awareness to the fact that there were all these other people involved besides the person who's sitting in jail? Well, it certainly wasn't my goal to make them ac- accountable for for things that they didn't do. Right. My my goal was to reveal the truth mm-hmm. about who was involved. Right. And then to hopefully be able to seek some kind of justice for the victim's families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If it was just Dan alone, then... I guess they're all satisfied. But right. I think that many of us know at this point, it, it just wasn't Dan alone. Mm-hmm. And if so, why are they getting a pass? Yeah. I mean, Rachel Buffett's going to be in county jail for a year. That is unbelievable. And her behavior, even from before, I'm not going to spoil anything, but there's a lot of, there's the compulsive shoplifting and just, she's, I, I just don't, I wouldn't be surprised if she was involved in more things she's later. Troubled. If she is not locked up, whoever she's involved with, she will do whatever it takes to get what she wants. And of course, there's the drugs. The mm-hmm. drugs oh, yeah. are ma- a major part of all this, too. Absolutely. There's a totally off-topic question. The phone call from a friend to Sam, and Sam sounded strange on the phone and said he was having trouble with his dad. And was that Ruben the- Monaco. Was that the day of the murder? That was the day of the murder. So what was the thinking behind that? Do we think he was with Dan and feeling like something was weird and trying to give a hint to his friend that something was weird? No. Dan no. thought he was a great actor. Yeah. It was- and he was trying to perform the role of Sam at that point. Ruben oh, Manacho was calling Sam's phone. Where are you? You're supposed okay. to be at this barbecue on the beach. Right. Where are you? Where are you? And Dan at one point picks up Sam's phone and pretends to be Sam. Hey, dude. Yeah. And that's Ruben said that. I'm surprised there wasn't a fake mustache (laughs) and like a cane with a fake limp involved in this. I better be careful. I'm not supposed to laugh. If I (laughs) laugh, I get excoriated. (gasps) But you said really beautifully in the episode with the boyfriend that even Sam's dad felt like you had to keep laughing about things. But because. Well, that's one of the things that we tried to say at the end of that episode, which was look, there has been a lot of laughter here, but I have spent every week for nearly three years with Sam's dad, Steve Hare. Mm-hmm. And Steve Hare is many things, but top on that list is the most incredible sense of humor. Mm. And I used to feel so guilty that I would be laughing when we would be talking about these, this horrible you know, mm-hmm. thing that happened to his son. And he said, please don't ever stop laughing. Don't stop laughing because that's what keeps me going. Like the fact that my sense of humor can bring levity to you in some way is is what makes me feel like I'm still alive because otherwise I'm just dead inside. And so I tried to express that. And the other thing is what listeners I hope can appreciate is that when you're talking to 
the person you are extracting some very intimate details, Mm -hmm. some private details that maybe they're not altogether proud of several years later, right? But in the course of telling their story, right, have this sort of nervous laughter and they're trying to be as honest as possible and you're protracting as much as you can from, you're not going to sit there and be stoic. You try to engage them in a way that makes them feel comfortable and makes them feel like it's okay to share it all. You want to create that environment, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, there was some laughter, but you know, it's the same kind of laughter when, you know, you're talking about a funeral or, right? it's like, like, oh, this is really Listen, our listeners bad, will but... not feel bad. And I'm, I've am i said it. Met. Have I said it I'm Jewish before? Yeah, I mentioned a, few times. a thousand times that I'm Jewish. Yeah. But that's, I feel like, one of the, our so, principles so is you have to keep, it's, you have to laugh about these tragic things or you won't get through. And it's how, what I think helps Jews get through, you know, horrible situations. And so you got some bad feedback from the yeah, laughter why? specifically I mean, in that episode? That was episode? such a good episode. That was probably the most, of any of the episodes, it was a lightning rod because wow. people just felt that I was unprofessional, <gasps> that I was gossiping. They actually accused me of flirting with Scott <gasps> Eric And Scott Eric is a fine gentleman, but I was in no way, I don't even know how to flirt, to tell you the truth. <laughs> I am not a flirt. I, I, I'm so focused on what I'm doing. I'm like, He flirting. said you were very charming at one point. And I was like, oh, is he flirting with her? I don't care. I'm in for it. I say, in that kind like, of stuff, you just say that to me. I'm like, I don't even remember that. Yeah. I mean, I don't even pay any mind to that. I, I'm so like driven by the truth and, right. and, and, yeah. and wanting to uncover the truth. Anything that involves that is where my focus is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, flirting. My How gracious. disappointing. It yeah. also seems like if you listen to the in, the podcast in its entirety, you are adapting to suit the mood or the levity or whatever the person that you're interviewing has, like a good investigative journalist does. I, it doesn't make sense. That episode sounded perfect to me. It, it sounds like, oh, that's how he's that kind of guy. Honest, it was were, one of my favorites. It was so much fun to listen to. And I think you got more information because he was enjoying speaking to you. Yeah. And then he called back for more stories, which is what we want. We want to get to the heart of Rachel. And he knew her really well. So, And how else? And this is another thing I want your listeners to hopefully recognize is that how else would you have had a window into that world Never. Right? if I didn't bring him on? On and engage him the way I did. He taught. He told us so much so that was much. never heard anywhere else before. Oh my goodness! I mean, that's the whole point of what I do. Again, not going to give anything away, but a story about the brother and the brother's girlfriend at a bar, jaw dropping. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have gotten that Again, anywhere no else. Boundaries, right? These, yes. Like no conscience. No. I mean, no. he's trying to tell that story and going, "Dude, did you even talk to her?" Right. We're, we're referring to Noah at one point. His girlfriend got pregnant. And he did not want to have this child with her. So he came up with some pretty bizarre scenarios of what he was going to do. As did Rachel to to help solve, quote unquote, the problem that could have, in fact, led to another murder. And so (laughs) there's Scott Eric saying, so crazy. Scott Eric's like, dude, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before we go to poison or (laughs) throwing her down the stairs, maybe you need to ask her. Does she want to have the baby? Like, just did you even ask her that question? Talk to her. Like, like so these person. are the kinds of conversations. How would your listeners or my listeners or any listeners ever learn this? Again, there's no smoking gun, but there's these little windows into these person's behaviors, especially with her brother, her family. Mm-hmm. How does she act? These are the ideas they came up with together like it was no big deal. 
that is a huge window into this person. Right. That's I, like Bizarreville. Yes. And all these things I feel like kind of make a smoking gun, right? Yes. If That's like, my point. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was this dossier of all of this craziness that, again, I have shown my listeners over 35 hours of content, but I also, we reduced to this 10-page document that we gave to Mr. Murphy. And uh, I think at this point, because of what was put on the record and what he said to the jury in Daniel Wozniak's case, he couldn't back away from that narrative. Right. And and so to go after her for murder would have been just too far, too big a leap. It's so funny because we see we see it on Dateline all the time, and we've been become friends with the daughter of a, a man who was killed, and the mother's in jail, Sandra Melgar. And uh, Truth and Justice podcast is doing a thing on it, and it's just the police when they get the person that they wanted for it, they shape all the facts to build that it's theory, their narrative. and then they let go of anybody else. But in and a lot of it's if who's running for office and they want a good conviction under their belts and things like that. But in this case, you could have had – it's the most sensational thing ever is the two actors, the Disney princess. It, I feel like, would have helped them – I mean, would have looked great for them if they could have nailed both of them. I remember asking point blank, Scott Sanders, why, why do you think – because you, I think if you've listened to the podcast, you've you've learned of the inconsistent arguments, right? right. The arguments that he made yes. about Rachel and the capital case against Dan, and then the arguments he's made in Rachel's case of accessory after the fact. Mm-hmm. And they're quite different. Right. And I said, why? Why do you think he didn't want to go after her? Why? He had so much to go after her with. And the, Scott Sanders said, winning. He has to win. You, you, you keep forgetting about those cameras. Lawyers are to me are just as fascinating as the criminals because it is. It's about their record. If they they only want to take on cases that they can win, it's not about if they think the person did it or not half the time. But it's so fascinating with this case because we're dealing with two actors who wanted to be famous more than anything else and how you've talked about Rachel when she reads press about it and she says they're referring to me as an actress. actress but we we have the people so, in the courtroom acting the same way they're yeah, acting it up for the cameras definitely I'm sorry when you're talking about winning do you mean that they wanted him to have the death penalty because they would have won anyways or do you think this was a death penalty push and they thought that if Rachel was charged right alongside him. They couldn't get him for death. Is that... He, he was worried. In fact, he told me the one time I sat with him mm-hmm. and the first thing I, I plopped myself down and I said, so, Matt, I really do think that Rachel Buffett was the mastermind in all this. And he said, give me a break, Linda. I mean, really? Really? I said, no, Matt, I really do. And I have reasons. I mean, I'm not just saying it. I, I come from New York. I, I, I've never set foot in the OC before. I, I don't know anything about the dynamics other than the people that I've interviewed thus far. And I'm telling you that, you know, th- this to me really feels like from what everybody's telling me about the dynamic between their, their relationship and her personality and, and whatnot, that, that she was pulling the strings. You know, he just didn't want to hear it because that did not, that went against his narrative. That was, and, and from that moment on, I mean, there was so many times he gave the press 
his PowerPoint presentation mm-hmm. and he kept saying he was going to give it to me. And so I'd give him, he'd ask for those little thumb drives, sure. right? And I'd give it to him and he said, I'll give it to you next time you're in court. And then, it, oh, I forgot. I'm sorry. Actually, I lost it. Could you give me another? I gave him three separate thumb drives and he never, ever planned on giving me PowerPoint presentation. Actually, Steve Hare witnessed a couple of those exchanges and outside the courtroom in the hallways and but once once I had that conversation, once I stated my beliefs, mm-hmm. that was it for me. I was no longer, mm-hmm. I was persona non grata. Mm-hmm. And yet I hope, it's my hope, that with the new DA and with the evidence that Sleuth has revealed to, to many listeners, and hopefully to the new DA, because my understanding is he does listen, that he will revisit the charges against Rachel because... You can charge a person. She has been convicted of two felony counts of accessory after the fact. Mm -hmm. If new evidence or a new act, if you will, Mm -hmm. has been revealed and presented to the DA's office, it has to be a different act from what she was charged and convicted of. If that act is presented, they can, in fact, charge her with murder. And would you like to see charges brought against brothers? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So what can we expect in your final episode of Sleuth for this season? Well, Without I have, giving away. <laughs> I have spent uh, quite a bit of time with a person that I refer to as Deep Throat. And the reason I do that is because this person does want to remain anonymous. Mm-hmm. Very afraid because of the proximity this person has with people that are still in Rachel's life. And... I've tried to convince this person that your best protection is coming forward because, of course, Rachel knows what she said to you. So, therefore, if you come forward and I could give you access to the police and to the new DA and we can make this happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, I tried and yet she still feels like she just can't come forward uh, And so I'm going to share with the listeners without revealing the person's name. Mm-hmm the details of what this person told me as far as what Rachel confessed to her. Wow. Oh, I can't wait. And Rachel right now is where? Sitting in county jail. In which? In In Orange County. In Orange County, county jail. For two, yes, for a year. She was convicted of two felony counts of accessory after the fact. Mm -hmm. Not enough. And she's only how old? She's 20, I want to say... Seven, maybe 28 now. Yeah, she has her whole life ahead of her to commit yeah. more crimes. But if you listen to those phone calls, did you crimes? listen to oh, the yes. phone calls? I mean, the whole, all those phone calls between Dan and Rachel. Oh, my goodness. I, all she talks about is how, how you, she, he ruined her life and how no man's ever going to touch her and how... I you cheer. know, I'm, I, I, I appreciate it. I love you for what you've done, but I'm just so pissed off you screwed it up. Yes, I'm so mad it's at you unbelievable. for screwing it up. When, when you express your outrage in the podcast about it, I was cheering. I was like, yes, yes, because it is the most narcissistic. Oh, it's all about me. I'm ruined. I'll never trust again. Just all about her. And, and those phone calls were fascinating. And for everyone out there, they are in their entirety on Sleuth. And just listening to them gives you so much insight into how their relationship worked. Mm-hmm. And the dynamic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just her as a person and sort of what she's trying to get because she's trying to get something out of those phone calls she knows she's being recorded it's like a bonnie and clyde and in fact also i did a lot of uh work on the hillside stranglers oh and 
their relationship too. Neither of them had killed before they were cousins, Ken Bianchi and, and uh, Bono. The two of them met and there was a symbiotic combustible relationship that created this litany of murders. Mm -hmm. right? And so I think of them, if they never had met, who right. knows what would have happened, but because they met and they, they sort of fed off each other, this, this desire to take their dangerous, dark side to the mm -hmm. next level. Right. Because they felt like they were invincible, mm -hmm. right? I right. mean, and that's a combination of stealing and getting away with it, the lies and getting away with it, mm -hmm. um, borrowing from everybody they knew and getting away with it. And then it came down to, okay, so how now are we going to continue our livelihood? Mm -hmm. Because we really like these drugs we're taking. <laughs> right. And now you become almost soulless when you take these drugs. Right. I mean, we're talking about not just ecstasy, but crystal meth. It's right. pretty you serious... had a great quote. You said... That because I've always questioned that too. Like, can you just blame the drugs, or would this person already be a murderer? And you said something about when you're on these drugs, you could kill your own grandma. Right, you're sure. soulless. Yes. And in fact, Bob Castillo, who was episode twenty, mm -hmm. who was the lifelong friend and and the person that delivered the gun to the Long Beach police and ultimately Costa Mesa, he's told me that if you're on crystal meth, if you're bad, it just makes you even worse. Right. Gotcha. Like, it takes you, the bad that's already in you right. and amplifies, amplifies. it. Yeah. And I thought that was a very interesting... Do we know how much, like how many drugs they were taking? How much they were spending on drugs? I don't even think they knew. Gotcha. I mean, they, they didn't have any... There was just always... And that's why Tim got involved in their lives. In fact, Tim told Bob Castillo, because when he was sharing with Bob Castillo that... They're starting to do this credit card fraud stuff mm -hmm. and uh, they're doing drugs. And, and, and Bob's like, this does not sound like the Danny I know. This sounds like you, Tim. And I need to go down and talk to him. And when Bob went down, Dan wasn't in his apartment, but Tim had pointed out this walk-in closet and said, this is where I'm going to move into. Now, everybody I have spoken to said Tim could not stand his brother, hated his brother. His brother wow. took his limelight away from him. He was the golden child because the boys were pretty, pretty far apart. The mm -hmm. Mikey, the oldest, and then Tim was, uh, they were seven years apart. And then Tim and Danny were 10 years apart. So for a long time, Tim Wozniak was the golden boy, handsome dude, blonde, blue. you wouldn't tell from that, from some of those mug shots, but a lot of crystal meth later, yeah, you know, right, you're going to yeah. look like crap. But So he hated his brother for so many years. And then Bob said for him to say he was moving in with him really was a red flag for him as well, you know. So, But, but Tim was the access to the drugs. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Can you walk just really quick? The timeline of the wedding, and was this wedding actually going to happen? Did Rachel really want this to happen? When did they actually call off the wedding? I know there was a rehearsal dinner when Dan was actually in jail. I was so confused about the timeline of this. Okay. So there was no rehearsal dinner. It was actually, he calls it a bachelor party. It really wasn't even a bachelor party. It was a couple of guys and Dan at a uh, sushi restaurant, Tsunami Sushi in Huntington Beach. And the police showed up there to arrest him for accessory after the fact because mm -hmm. they felt like Sam was on the run and Dan was covering, covering for him. Mm -hmm. So they brought him in. Then they eventually brought in Rachel early that next morning. Okay. And the combination of bringing her in, talking to her, feeling like there was something odd with her and the way she was reacting to what they were telling her and her reactions with Dan. They, they felt like they were trying to get on each other's same script page. Mm -hmm. And they just felt the whole thing was a farce. And then those calls took place. Mm -hmm. And... Rachel had ran into Tim 
after she had come out of the Wozniak house because after Rachel left that interview with the with the Costa Mesa police, first thing you should know is she walked to the car because the Costa Mesa police, uh, actually Detective Morales, was driving her back to Camden Martinique uh-huh. because they had picked her up there and brought her in a, in a cop car. So they were going to drive her back. And as they were getting into the police car to go back to Costa Mesa, she said, by the way, did you look into Sam's past? You know, he was he was once <gasps> yeah. charged with murder. So there you go. She's already trying mm-hmm. to set up the same thing with telling the police just a few minutes earlier in that interview that Dan could have given the money to Sam or the loan sharks outside the apartment. I mean, she was throwing him under the bus. Mm-hmm. They, he was their guy, mm-hmm. right, that he, they should be focusing on. But she went back to Camden Martinique and she hung out with Dave Barnhart. And there's a whole lot of stuff that went on there. And finally, the phone calls that took place, Dan frantically calling her. She had said that she was going to go tell the Wozniaks what had happened, that he was arrested and they need to get him a lawyer. Mm -hmm. When she was coming outside of the Wozniak home with Violet Randolph at the time, Tim drove up in his car with Lisa Gulledge, his girlfriend at the time, and she walked over. And that's when all of the stuff about Tim talking to her about the gun and the evidence, what's he going to do with it? And so she tells Dan on the phone that that transaction took place, that that transpired. And that's when he sort of said, okay, I'm done, right? And so he gave it up and and confessed to everything. That was the phone call where he said, I'm about to do something and you're never going to see me again or something. Very dramatic. A week after the murders. The murders took place on Friday and early Saturday morning, Mm -hmm. right? So it was the 21st and then 12.04 a.m. the 22nd. Then the arrest of Dan Wozniak took the took place the following Wednesday night oh. on the 26th. Okay. Oh, it was much then, longer than I thought. And okay. then the next morning, Rachel, then Rachel going to Wozniak's, then sure. those phone calls by Thursday, the 27th in the afternoon, Dan's confessing he was supposed to get married the following day. Friday. Correct. Wow. Okay. She's telling police that Thursday morning, which is 3 to 6 a.m., mm-hmm. right, that was right after he was arrested the night before at the at the sushi place. She's telling police, well, I wasn't crazy about him. I wasn't over the top in love with him, but I was okay with that. He was a bad lover with a small penis. I can't <laughs> and even. And meanwhile, she's supposed to marry the guy the next day. I can't. Like, who, who It's insane. That? No, I was so fascinated by this. It was just more about her wedding being ruined or, you know, what were people she was going to, she didn't get to wear her dress and stuff. It was not about these two people, obviously, that passed away. Julie was not coming to the wedding, but was Sam invited to the wedding? supposedly he was yeah. maybe was that right they like, put an invitation on his counter but steve Hare believes that that was put there the night of the murders so oh he interesting think, right? yeah. interesting that was the other thing the handwriting analysis all that with the right. s and right oh yes on the sweatshirt right what right. was that message about what did that, did that actually well supposedly the message was supposed to be a f you to the police you know she's all yours now uh, she wouldn't give it up for me that he he wanted to create this idea of this love triangle. But because she had at one point this fiance on the Internet, but the guy was in Japan. Like, so he has said that it was really a, a fuck you to police. But why? I have no idea. What I just find also sickening is that Sam Hare offered to give them a wedding present of $100, right? So the whole point is none of this, this hatched plan of, of this murderous hatched plan couldn't have taken place without a pin number, right? right? Right. So Dan's way of getting the pin number out of Sam was to say, Sam, can you help me? We're about to get evicted and we need an extra hundred dollars. 
Now he had the money he needed, but he wanted that extra hundred dollars just so that he figured Sam would say yes to a hundred. It wasn't a lot. So he could go and he said, I need you to come with me because my bank account is overdrawn. I need you to come with me to the bank and do a cashier's check because I have the rest of the cash. So Sam said, okay, consider it a wedding present. You don't have to pay me back. Come on, let's go. And so on that Tuesday, the Tuesday when Chris Williams initially gave him the $2,000, Sam took him to the bank, went to the ATM, took the $100 out of the account, and that's where Dan saw him putting in his PIN number. So there's Sam helping him. Yeah. Wow. Only, no, it's as evil only knowing as you can that get. that's his death warrant. Yeah, yeah it's as it's evil the, as you can get. It's the same thing with Julie going to help Sam, right? Because mm-hmm. she thinks he's in trouble, right. and that's mm-hmm. her death warrant. Right. These yeah. two really good people, right? And it's just desperation over money. That you think all of that was coming from Rachel, the pressure to provide or. What happened was is she found the sex tape. She found the sex sex tape a few weeks back, and she was going to leave him. And she told him that she wrote him a letter. She had it. She was done. And what Dan told an informant in the county jail was, he said, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you your cruise, to get you the Mm -hmm. money you need for your life. And she said, do whatever you have to do to make us happy. Yeah. And she even says that in the phone call and she words it very strangely as, I know you were just trying to make us happy together or something. Mm -hmm. I'm just mad that you... I'm just mad that you messed it up. Yeah. And then the... The boyfriend said something how she had sent pictures to Dan of herself scantily clad, like she was going to maybe do porn or something to well, get the money. Well, that's what happened during the day didn't... that Chris Williams was there. There was a lot of photos taken of very provocative uh-huh. stances. And you know, I have these photos of her in these bikinis and... And she was on the internet looking for uh, nude photos, where to sell nude photos, where to do s- stripper stuff. And you know. Dateline said photos? she was on the fo- on the computer looking for jobs. Yes, yeah, <laughs> jobs. They said she was looking for jobs, yeah. high profile jobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, she's a master manipulator. Yes, unbelievable. Yes. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I hope that what Sleuth has proven, based on all the interviews and all the people that have been willing to come on, is is to prove that this has been sort of a lifelong pathology, you know, that there is, in fact, this personality disorder mm-hmm. that exists with both of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well. You know, Tim and Noah, they're not far behind. Mm-hmm. And all of them together. Perfect storm. Right. Everyone, please listen to Sleuth. It's so good. I cannot good. recommend higher right yeah, now. Linda it's does unbelievable. Such job. Thank you so much for bringing all this out in the open and hopefully getting some much deserved justice. For and the families are so sweet yeah. and they deserve it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I do it for. It's just, and the truth should come out. Yeah. yeah it's wonderful. So Thank it's supposed so to be a truth based system. And, yes. Right. And you're supposed to have faith that it's a truth-based system. So thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you again. Thank you. Now, Wesley, the teenager. Did you talk he, to Wesley? He got oh, yes. no time. You talked to him? Oh, yeah. And he took out more than he's saying he took out. because Yeah, because then he just didn't give it to him, right? right. He just kept it. Exactly. That's he didn't what... say his balls were up inside of him when he was talking well, to you, did he? Because he said it on day one.